There's no denying it, holiday shopping season has arrived. Which brings us to David Yurman, America's foremost luxury jewelry brand. Its new campaign, Create Joy, Give David Yurman, celebrates life's small wonders and the magic of the holiday season. To create it, David Yurman partnered with the Savannah College of Art and Design's SCAD Pro Studio program to create the brand's first extended reality project. Together, they merged the real and virtual worlds to create an immersive environment that pays homage to David Yurman's home and perennial inspiration, New York City. Experience the holiday magic at davidyurman.com. Happy Saturday. It's December 9th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. Well, Michael, the holidays have arrived, and we have gifts of all varieties ready to be opened here on this episode. We do, and I have gifts for you, waiting for you when I see you. But for now, we've got a terrific issue this week, great stories, and we got some of them here, beginning with Joanna Berkman, who's going to join us with her report on the turmoil rocking Harvard. Then, Bill Keenan has a fascinating story of what happened 30 years ago when the owners of a National Hockey League team had the crazy idea to try to profit off of what remained of the vaunted Red Army hockey team after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And finally, Bob Colicello will join us with a look at the legendary life of Marina Ciccogna, an Italian countess who transcended her gilded background to become Europe's first major female film producer. Ashley, where would you like to begin? Well, Michael, I think we should start with the situation at Harvard. I mean, those guys always like to be first. So Johanna is going to take us inside the hallowed halls of Harvard and tell us exactly how the Israel-Hamas war has divided its community and its administration. Johanna is a writer at large for Airmail, and she's written many wonderful stories for us, including a gripping portrait of Jumi Bello, which won the 2023 Deadline Club Award for Arts Reporting. Welcome, Johanna. Hi, great to be here, Ashley and Michael. Okay, so before we get into the nuts and bolts of what's happening at Harvard, tell us a little bit about the anti-Semitic incidents that happened on campus in the wake of the October 7th Hamas attacks. Sure. To go back to October 7th, during that actual day, as the events were still unfolding, more than 30 Harvard student groups together put out a joint statement blaming Israel for all unfolding violence. This made news ultimately globally and certainly on campus by so many students and faculty, people in the Jewish community, as well as the broader Harvard Jewish community of alumni, did not take this well at all, to put it mildly. Many felt was brutal, unfair, in the extreme. And how did the administration at Harvard respond in the wake of these initial actions? Well, in terms of their public stature, the statement was put out on October 7th. The Harvard administration did not put out a statement until October 9th. And it was not until after Larry Summers, who is a Harvard president emeritus, as well as the former Treasury Secretary under Clinton, and as well as the current Harvard economics professor, he put out a statement on Twitter saying that he was sickened, that he had never been more alienated from Harvard in 50 years of affiliation with the university. And it was after that, that President Claudine Gay, together with, I believe it's her 15 deans, put out a joint statement. And the joint statement was not a denunciation of Hamas. It did not condemn the terrorist acts of Hamas. And it more just sort of talked about Israel and Gaza. And, you know, this is terrible and it's just a bad situation. And that, of course, did not assuage all the concerns and the profound alienation that the initial statement 
had put out. And then that triggered more statements and it kind of continued to devolve from there. Now, Claudine Gay has only been in the job at Harvard for a matter of months. Tell us a little bit about her. Sure. She, prior to becoming president of Harvard, she was for, I believe it's five years, the dean of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. That is really the heart of the university. She was dean there for five years. She is a professor in two different departments. She is a professor of government. She's also a professor in the African and African-American Studies Department. She is also the founding member of Harvard's Center for Inequality. All eyes are really on Claudine Kay at the moment right now, um, not only because of her testimony before Congress, which we can get to in a minute, but also for her response to or lack of response, one might say, to the incident at Harvard Business School. It was October 18th. On this particular day, students were protesting in Harvard Yard outside of Claudine Gay's office. But President Obama was actually slated to speak at an event concerning the Internet. And so hundreds of protesters then marched the way Harvard is set up. The business school is actually across the Charles River from the majority or a significant portion of the Harvard campus. And so you had hundreds of protesters marching across when they heard Obama was coming to go protest. And then suddenly Obama did not show up and his speech was canceled very much at the last minute due to, quote, COVID symptoms. It didn't say that he had COVID, but that he had COVID symptoms. This was also, it's important to note, the day after the bombing of a hospital in Gaza for which initially Israel was blamed. Later, that was found not to be the case. That was already had just happened. And they had what is called a die-in, which for those who may not be familiar with that is when um, protesters lie on the ground and pretend to be some of the dead victims. And of course, many people are dying in Gaza, as we know, and the students were lying down on the ground in protest of that while another student read a testimony of one of the doctors from the hospital. At this point, many of the Israeli students at Harvard Business School went inside. They were fearful. But one student did decide to go out. He lives nearby to where this was taking place. And he decided that he, you know, he started to film it. And this student just with his phone was sort of videotaping what was happening. And then he was confronted with these self-appointed protest marshals. These are students who wear, you know, a yellow vest and they use their kafias to kind of block him and cordon him off. And the group that was doing that became larger. He was alone. There were several of them. And it really from I've seen multiple videos shot from different phones at different angles. It's hard to know exactly, but it seems they surrounded him. They blocked him. They all started screaming shame, shame at, you know, at the highest pitch you can imagine. And you can hear him saying, don't touch me. Don't touch me. You're grabbing me. Get your hands off my neck and things of that nature. Um, this was not just a, a sort of casual. Let's you know, we don't want you filming. Please leave. It was far more aggressive than that. And this has caused a lot of outrage and shock and horror among members of the Harvard community, including donors to Harvard, right? I mean, we're talking about an institution with a $51 billion endowment, and there are some really powerful people on that board. How are all of these interests playing out in terms of, of the response to this? Yes, a lot of people are upset on the outside, as you say, and certainly Bill Ackman, who is a billionaire alumnus of multiple Harvard schools, has, you know, sort of taken up the charge on this. But really, um, the power center at Harvard is not, you know, I know it's sort of to some extent been portrayed this way. The power center really is not the donors. They do have some power as donors do in any institution. But truly, 
The power at Harvard resides with the corporation. It's not a typical board of trustees setup. It's the oldest corporation in America. At the end of the day, the power is all theirs. They, I believe, have the right. If they lost faith in Claudine Gay, I believe that would matter. You know, whether donors lose faith in her. The enormous endowment does give wiggle room to a president to the extent that, you know, if they have an off year or a couple of off years, you know, in theory, that could be okay. Now, on the other hand, Harvard is actually, despite its great wealth, or perhaps in connection with their ability to have accumulated it over so many years, quite a frugal institution. And they have a massive fundraising operation and they care dearly, not just about the Bill Ackmans of the world, but they also care dearly about the smaller donors. However, you know, in light of the testimony yesterday, you're seeing a lot of pushback against Claudine Gay from all quarters, including the Biden administration. And, you know, there's a lot of bipartisan disappointment with her testimony yesterday. So let's talk about that, Joanna. You know, this obviously anti-Semitism on campus is not exclusively confined to Harvard. It's been happening at many universities across the U.S. And it's caught the attention of the House of Representatives. And on Tuesday, we had Claudine Gay of Harvard, Elizabeth McGill of University of Pennsylvania, Pamela Nadell of American University and Sally Kornbluth of MIT testifying before a House committee. What did we learn? What we learned is that all of them seemed very loath to answer a question, um, a series of questions by Elise Stefanik, who is a Republican of New York, who is a Harvard alumna. She has been calling for Claudine Gay's resignation for some time. You know, it was very expected that there would be a kind of confrontation there. Elise Stefanik is not shy, to put it mildly, and her positions on these issues were already known. But what you saw was that Claudine Gay, as well as the others, were reluctant to say that calls for the genocide of the Jews was in violation of university policies and codes. Congresswoman Stefanik pressed repeatedly on this. And Claudine Gay said, you know, when that would cross into conduct, that would be a violation of our policies. And Elise Stefanik said, to paraphrase something to the extent, okay, so if they do a genocide of the Jews, then it violates your policies. And I think what we're seeing is that this very strict interpretation of their policies and this very absolutist adherence to freedom of speech seems problematic. And you're not only seeing, as I said, that from, you know, Republicans, but you are seeing that from President Biden as well, that that something seems amiss here. And I think in the wake of it, even Lawrence Tribe, the uh, noted legal scholar and longtime Harvard Law School professor who has a million followers on Twitter, he put out yesterday that, you know, he disagrees with Stefanik on most things, but that she is right here and he's profoundly disappointed, as are so many of his, you know, colleagues, students and friends. And then what you saw was Claudine Gay, who is not typically on Twitter, put out a Twitter statement saying, let me be clear and trying to clarify. And so I think we're seeing serious problems here. And when you have the Biden administration chiming in against the president of Harvard, I think that's a very clear statement that this has devolved to a very significant extent. How do you see this playing out over the next few weeks and months as this conflict plays out in the Middle East? So there's a couple of really important data points here, one of which is Harvard receives hundreds of millions of dollars a year in federal funding. Harvard also has tax exempt, does not pay federal taxes. They are a nonprofit, just like these other you know, major institutions. And at least Stefanik said, and, and I think it's quite clear that she's going to go after that. 
if Harvard is violating Title VI, which is the kind of anti-discrimination, you can't discriminate on the basis of an ethnic group or anything like that, that could imperil their funding. Certainly their tax status. I mean, how have they accumulated $51 billion beyond the fact that people give very generously at all different levels to the university and they tend to invest it very well over time, though they certainly have had many disappointing years. They've done a very good job overall. They have tax exemption and they've had that for a very, very long time. And that has very much helped them to accumulate their vast wealth. And so those are two, I would say, of the most significant pressure points. And I think you will see the Republicans pushing on that. You may even see it from the Democrats as well at this point. That's unclear. The other thing, and it's connected because it also has to do with the law and it also has to do with Title VI, is I do think we will see a wave of litigation coming in the near term. As I show in my story, the issue of anti-Semitism at Harvard is a longstanding one that has been developing and festering for many years. To what extent do these universities have true ideological diversity? Probably not so much. And I talk about that in my story because Claudine Gay did testify that Harvard has this robust free speech culture and, you know, any ideas entertained. And I would argue that's not quite accurate. She's not telling the full picture there. And as I share in my story, what Claudine Gay did not share was last year, Harvard College did a survey of its graduating seniors. And there were three questions about free expression. And how did you feel? You know, did you feel that you could discuss controversial topics with your peers? 39% said yes. Did you feel you could discuss controversial topics in your classes? I believe it's 37-ish said yes, from what I understand. And this data comes from the dean of the college, Rakesh Karana, I believe has been dean of Harvard College for about 10 years. So he has, has been there for quite some time. And when he shared this data on a recent phone call just a few weeks ago with Harvard volunteers, he said before he shared the data in answer to a question about, you know, how do you handle, you know, free speech and how do students engage with controversial topics and how do you balance all this? He said, Houston, we have a problem. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for this great reporting and analysis. Such an important issue. And I have a feeling we'll be talking to you about it again very soon. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure to be here as always. Thanks, Joanna. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's a story that's going to continue to develop. I mean, the takeaway from this, Michael, for me is I'm just really glad I'm not a university student anymore. Yeah, or a university president. Yeah, no kidding. Either side of it. Yeah, it's like you get the million dollar salary, but you're in the front page of the newspaper for everything you're doing wrong all the time. Yeah, it's kind of like being cross-checked by five hockey players, getting your face slammed against the boards. It reminds me of our next story, a crazy one, courtesy of our chief operating officer here at Airmail, Bill Keenan, who also, I should note, played hockey at Harvard. Yes, indeed. We've got Bill Keenan here. One of the things I love about Bill, he's truly our jack of all trades here at Airmail. He's our chief operating officer, one. He's a former professional hockey player, another. He's a Wall Street guy. That's a third. And then he also has written two books. Once again, making the rest of us look bad. We are very happy to have Bill here to tell us all about what happened when a bunch of sports lovers and hockey aficionados from Pittsburgh set up shop in Russia in the 1990s. Thanks for having me. All right. So 
I love your story this week. It takes us back 30 years to a time when sports was different, the world was different. Tell us about this idea that the Pittsburgh Penguins, sort of fresh off a Stanley Cup, had about how to maybe take advantage of shifts in the geopolitical world. Yeah, so this is about 1993, and the owners of the Penguins at the time, Howard and Karen Baldwin, and their partner, Tom Ruta, were approached by someone who was interested in helping out the sort of flailing Red Army hockey team. The Red Army hockey team had been, they've had this dynasty from the 70s and 80s, just the Miracle on Ice team. And when the Soviet Union fell, the government no longer supported the team. And so everything was sort of in disarray. But you had this incredible talent, this breeding ground for literally the best hockey players in the world, but no money coming into the Red Army team any longer. So they saw an opportunity. The Baldwins and Ruta saw an opportunity. And so they bought for a million dollars, 50 percent of the CSKA Red Army hockey team and basically decided they think there was sort of an opportunity to have a pipeline for the Pittsburgh Penguins in Russia and an opportunity like all the oligarchs that are over there trying to make money in this sort of crazy time. They saw an opportunity to make a financial profit. That was the impetus. Unlike oligarchs, though, they're not getting natural gas or things that actually have some value. Their path to perceived riches takes a little bit of a twist, right? So tell us, they go over there and maybe they should have followed their noses a little better as you detail in your story, because it's not quite the machine that they perceive it to be, right? No, absolutely not. So of course, they saw opportunity in Russia, but what normal human being that's American who knows anything about what's going on would actually want to go over there. So they found this guy, Stephen Warshaw. He was early 30s. He was a marketing whiz. The way I spent a lot of time talking to him, something that he's good at. And his tactics didn't really work in the U.S. because they were so outrageous. But he was a perfect person to send over to Russia because there were no rules. So this is a guy that doesn't operate within the confines of kind of normalcy. So it was a perfect place. He jumped at it. He was single. He was excited about it. And so he says he sees the world through his nose. And his description was Moscow was an olfactory nightmare for me. And he spent a lot of time sort of doing his diligence, trying to steer clear of all the hurdles, and these were hurdles like the mafia, like people with shotguns that were kind of patrolling the streets. I mean, this was lawless Russia at the time. And so he really had, he was tasked with, there's tremendous talent on the ice, but no one's coming to the games. And so in order for this venture to actually be successful for the Penguins, they needed to get butts in the seats. And in order to get butts in the seats, He said, what attracts a crowd? Craziness. And at that point, there was no marketing around the team. And so he sort of started sniffing around and he found in the basement of the rink, there was a strip club. And one of the first things he decided to do was offer the strippers a little bit of extra cash if they would go dance in during the intermissions of the games. And the way he describes it is he wanted to make it fan friendly and he was learning Russian at the time and he wanted them to act in unison. And so that was, of course, misinterpreted. And then sure enough, after the first period, there's strippers performing lesbian acts on the ice. And the fact is, as Tom Ruta, one of the owners said, they drew more fans the next game. And so there was this, there were bears on the ice 
drinking beers. These were outrageous times, but he was successful in the ultimate goal. And they went from 500 fans before he came, 500 fans per game to 5,000. I guess strippers on the ice draws a little better than just a t-shirt gun shooting off some stuff into the stands. Yeah. The only guns in that arena too were like sawed off shotguns. So it was a nice change of pace. Which is not a joke. So tell us about, it gets a little complicated because it's the Soviet Union after the fall. It's wide open and they're making money now. And of course they're making money. And so what happens next for these guys? Right. So the U.S. capitalism, you make money and all of a sudden you get opportunities and things typically go your way and there's competition. You make money in Russia and that draws a crowd, guys with ski masks, guys with shotguns underneath their jackets. It draws the wrong crowd because when people see money coming in and there's zero boundaries and no laws to govern anything, it's a free-for-all. But among all these things, real American dollars were coming. Western money, Coca-Cola, Nabisco. I mean, all the big companies saw an opportunity to get in front of Russian eyeballs and, and this new supposed free market. So when you get these huge sponsors and these big multinational conglomerate companies coming and sponsoring, of course, all the local mobs are going to say, wait a second, that's our money. And it's our money because we have more powerful guns and bigger mob bosses than you do. So at these games, you'd have the crowd and then up in the skyboxes, the sponsors, the Coca-Cola executives and all these guys that would come. And then all of a sudden it was literally at gunpoint, the mob would come up and say, I'll be taking that seat from you and I will be taking all this money. So you can imagine this was short lived. It was successful, but it ultimately failed for the same reasons that everything fails over there, just because there's no way to protect anything. Anything that's successful is going to draw a dangerous element. So the whole joint venture lasted two years. It was 93 to 95. And at the end of the second year, so you have half of the ownership is the Pittsburgh Penguins, and then half of the ownership is Valeri Gushin and Viktor Tikhonov, who were the coach and GM of the team. And so at the end of the second year, Tikhonov and Gushin came to New York and there was a dinner with the owners of the Penguins in New York City. It was at Morton Steakhouse. And the Penguins ownership group assumed it would be Tikhonov and Gushin because that's who always traveled to the U.S. when they had these meetings. But Tikhonov and Gushin brought along two friends to this dinner. They were described as their bankers. They did not say anything during the dinner. And what was communicated was we've got two bankers that are going to be involved in the venture going forward and you don't have any say in this. And I think that it was right about that time that they realized this is we've maxed out on what we can do here. And the level of danger was just no longer worth it. Bill, you're our chief operating officer here at Airmail. You're also a former hockey player. What would you have done in that situation? So long as I was offered a contract to play and the team was good, I would have probably stuck it out. Bill, reading your story and also reading your great book about the sport have made me somewhat of a hockey aficionado. But for those of us who are looking for this kind of excitement on the ice in 2023, is there anywhere we can get it? Or was this just a blip in sports history? 
This stuff still exists. I mean, I don't think you want to go to Russia right now, but in the European leagues, you still see there's more of a gunslinger attitude. The money that the ownership groups of some of these smaller European teams, and honestly, even the U.S., if you look at the minor leagues, these teams down in Texas, in the Southwest in the U.S., you'll get some exposure that you won't see at Madison Square Garden just because they have free reign to do whatever they want to do. So if they want to kind of market more towards the fighting and the craziness, it's still out there. I don't think the danger, I mean, Russia, there's still stories of people you have a bad game and the guy disappears or you have a great game and all of a sudden there's a wad of cash in your pants when you come back and you're changing. Bill, thank you so much for this great story, this wild adventure and for joining us today. See you later, Bill. Yeah, thank you guys. David Yerman's new holiday campaign, Create Joy, Give David Yerman, celebrates life's small wonders. And when it comes to giving joy, we have a few ideas. David Yerman's collections have something for everyone, whether it's sculpted cable, petite pavé, and starburst designs for her, or pavé beads, tags, and chains, and chevron for him. There's an irresistible mix of delights for everyone on your shopping list. For inspiration, visit davidyearman.com to browse the collections and take in the new campaign, inspired by the enchantment of the holiday season. David Yearman's designs are made to celebrate moments of connection, joyful memories, and unexpected magic. Happy holidays and happy shopping. Kind of great, huh, Michael? Who knew sports could be this exciting? I'm already casting the movie. It's a great movie. Where shall we go next? Well, we've got Bob Colicello with a fantastic look at a great life in this week's issue. Yes, indeed. What a character she was. It seems like Bob always has a front row seat to greatness, and his story in this week's issue is no exception. He takes us inside the life and times of the Italian countess who went on to produce some of the most storied movies in European film history. Bob is an editor-at-large for Airmail, and we're thrilled to have him. Welcome, Bob. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Okay. All right. The life and times of Countess Marina. So many people know her as one of Europe's most accomplished producers of film, but she had a terribly interesting upbringing. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of her life. Well, her grandfather, her mother's father, Volpi, was the richest man in Italy in the early part of the 20th century. Her father was an Italian count, old aristocratic family, and she was raised between Milan and Rome. But there was winters in Cortina, the Italian ski resort. Summers were like in Saint-Tropez or wherever. There's a very aristocratic but sort of early jazz head. Yeah. But she was sort of intimately connected with the world of film and its stars from an early age. Well, yeah, two things. Volpi started the Venice Film Festival, the first one in the world, I think in 1934. Meanwhile, Marina went to Sarah Lawrence College in New York, and her roommate was Barbara Warner, the daughter of Jack Warner, the boss to Warner Brothers Studios. And Barbara Warner and Marina Chipmonia decided to leave Sarah Lawrence after one year and move in with Barbara's parents at the fabulous Warner Mansion in Beverly Hills. And so right away, Marina was planted in the center of Hollywood in the 50s that still was full of glamour stars like Clark Gable and Ava Gardner. And I mean, she kind of met everybody. And in the meantime, her mother had bought an Italian film distribution company in Italy. And when Marina was uh, about 30 years old, she decided to take charge of this company. And one of the first films she distributed was Louis Goonwell's El Zor with Catherine Deneuve. And after distributing a few films that were very successful, she thought, why don't I produce the films myself? And she became very involved with Pier Paolo Pasolini, 
one of her greatest films was Teorema, which is one of my all-time favorite films. I saw it about four times at that point. That came out in the early 70s. And it starred Terrence Stamp as this kind of very sexy wanderer, you could say, who ended up seducing an entire Northern Italian and Yelly-like family, starting with the daughter, the son, the mother, played by the fantastic-looking great actress, Silvana Manganau, and even the father. And it ends with him seducing the maid, who then levitates. It's a crazy film. So Marina really was not afraid to produce films that were controversial, that were highly artistic. One of her films, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film, I think in 75 or 76. And that's about the time I met her when she and her girlfriend, Florinda Balkin, who was a Brazilian actress, would come to New York a lot. But New York in the 70s, all the Europeans, particularly the Italians, the rich Italians and the young Italians were fleeing Italy because of the Red Brigades were kidnapping people. It was a time of great political upheaval in Italy. So they, all the Ratazzi kids, the Brandolini kids, they all sent college in America. And they kind of were the ones who like to go out late at night, which Europeans do much more than Americans or did in those days. So it was a whole scene that Marina and Florinda were very much in the middle of in New York. And Bob, how did you first come across her? Well, I was working for Andy Warhol as editor of Interview Magazine starting in 1970. And when you worked with Andy, you pretty much met everybody. One night it was Mick Jagger's birthday party. The next day it was lunch with Marie Helena Rothschild. So I can't remember the exact moment I met Marina, but it was in, in that period. And we became really good friends pretty quickly. Is there anything you learned from her? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess through osmosis, I became more sophisticated in a way. But I'm from an Italian-American middle-class suburban family, and all these fancy people were really not that different than my grandmother from Naples and her sister. I mean, they all basically all have to gossip about whoever wasn't in the room. And no, but Marina, when I quit interview in 1983, and I had not yet signed up with Condé Nast and Vanity Fair, I had a summer off, basically, and Marina invited me to Rome for two weeks, and then we went to Sardinia for two weeks. And yeah, just going on on Ellie's boat in Sardinia, all of it just was part of an education that's never really stopped. But one of the reasons Andy hired me was that I could talk to anybody. So for whatever reason, I just took people as they were. And I think I expected them to take me as I was. She was a very loyal friend. I mean, can I could bring it back while I quit interview with she was, I thought some people would kind of drop me because they were, you know, using me to get to Warhol. But it didn't really happen. But Marina was extraordinary in her loyalty. I think what Marina made her special is she was so ahead of her time. She was the first female producer in Europe. She was quite open about her relationship with Florinda. But at the same time, she could make a big deal of it. And I think the thing that set her apart, particularly in, in the milieu she came from, was she was highly intelligent and that she did something with this intelligence. I mean, you don't get to produce films with Pasolini unless you're like as smart as he is in a way. And she just had a way of summing up things, judging people quickly and correctly. She wasn't mean-spirited, but if... She didn't like somebody. She just had a hard time hiding it. She could be a bit arrogant, a bit grand. She could revert to I'm Countess Chicago. I guess it's the complexity of her. But really, everyone I talked to in the, for the piece, like Paloma Picasso, Ronaldo Guerrero, who was her friend going back to their teenage years, they all remarked on her intelligence as something that really 
race or above the kind of idle rich, the idle aristocracy. Among Europeans and English aristocracy, working was not considered the thing to do. It was considered like beneath, but Marina never had that approach. I think she was a pathfinder in a way, but she just did it. She wasn't protesting. She wasn't, and maybe the approach was different, but the result was not different. And I, I think there were today a lot more Marina Chaconias out there working in various fields and rising very high level than there were in her time. I mean, I think she stood out. She sounds like an incredible person, Bob, and thank you so much for sharing your experiences with her. Well, thank you. I love airmail. I love being in airmail. And people are talking about it more and more, and that makes me happy. Well, we're happy to have you here, Bob. Thank you so much, Bob. Okay. Michael, what do you make of all of this? What I make of all of it is kind of wish I knew her, kind of wish I moved in those circles. And that's why I'm always grateful we've got Bob here. If you can't be moving in them, you've got someone who is moving in them and can tell us everything that went on. It's a good reminder. I want to watch a lot of her movies. I mean, she was like at the epicenter of greatness. Belle de Jour. When's the last time you saw that? During lockdown. Oh, fine. That's you, Michael. I can't watch it. Every time I watch it, I order another pair of Roger Vivier shoes. It's like bad for my bank account. Not doing it. Oh, I love the pronunciation. Roger Vivier. Absolutely. I mean, we're very continental over here on morning meeting. Mm-hmm. All right, Michael. Well, it is the weekend. Now that we've dealt with hockey, anti-Semitism, and dead countesses, surely you've got something else you can recommend to us. I do. And it's a movie I love, and it's a good holiday thing. You talk about the holidays being here, Christmas. Have you heard of or seen The Holdovers, Ashley? No, I've read so much about it that we've done a couple stories in airmail about it. Tell me, how did you find it? I think it's great. It's a new film by Alexander Payne, who did Sideways, and it brings back Paul Giamatti, who sort of broke through in that film some years ago. This is a film that I think is going to have a long life this season and probably pushed into the Oscars. It's a fantastic story of Giamatti plays this cranky teacher at a prep school in 1970 up in New England. And the title refers to the kids who cannot go home for the holiday break. They're holdovers at school. And obviously he's got to babysit them. They've got nowhere to go, but he soon forms this bond with a couple of kids. And I won't reveal too much of where it goes, but I thought the writing's great. The acting's fantastic. Very funny, very poignant, and it reminds me of the kind of films that's been said that doesn't don't get made very much anymore. Very character-driven, small, but it's got a fantastic heart, and I loved it. It's called The Holdovers. It's in theaters right now, but it's also streaming on Apple. Did you read, Steve Cabarino did a great story in the issue for us a few weeks ago about how The Holdovers is one of those movies that isn't, it's not a direct ad- adaptation of a Salinger novel, but it sort of could have been. Did you find that to be the case? Like, were there Holden Caulfield vibes running throughout? I mean, to me, it's got Holden Caulfield, but it's not a 50s thing. It's just that, to me, it's more of a 70s. It's got, even the trailer they cut for it has this kind of retro feel to it. So I'd say it's got that Holden thing. It's got a bit of like, almost like ice stormy kind of thing. And And even, like I said, like those early, late 70s, early 80s coming of age films, I thought it was terrific. Well, I love it. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We'd like to give an extra special thanks to our sponsor, David Yerman. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Bartelli, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. But in the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.